story is told of a little boy, a young man by the name of Johnny. And Johnny came into the kitchen where his mother was making dinner. His birthday was uh, coming up, and he thought it would be a great time to tell her what he would like for his birthday. And he said, Mom, I want a bike for my birthday. The problem was that Johnny was a little bit of a troublemaker. Got in trouble at school, got in trouble at home, had always tested the patience of his teachers and of his parents, specifically his mother. And his mother asked him if he thought he deserved to get a bike for his birthday. And uh, of course he said, sure, I deserve it. Um, his mom being the Christian woman and godly woman that she was, she wanted him to understand the truth of his behavior and she wanted him to be able to correct him, to train him in the way that he should go. And so he said to, she said to him, why don't you go into your room and I want you to think about your behavior over the last year. And I want you to sit down and I want you to write a letter to God explaining to him why it is you believe you deserve a bike for your birthday. So he stomped out of the room and grabbed a piece of paper and a pen and went up into his room, sat down at the desk, and letter number one, Dear God, I've been a very good boy this year, and I'd like a bike for my birthday. I want a red one. Your friend, Johnny. So as he sat and thought about it for a while, he knew that wasn't exactly true. He hadn't been a very good boy this year. So he tore up the letter, he started over, and he went, Letter number two, Dear God, this is your friend, Johnny. I've been a good boy this year. I'd like a red bike for my birthday. Thank you, your friend, Johnny. Well, he knew that wasn't true either. He tore it up and he started again. Third letter. I've been an okay boy this year. I still would really like a bike for my birthday, Johnny. He knew he couldn't send that either. So he wrote a fourth letter and the letter was, I know I haven't been a good boy this year and I'm very sorry. I will be a good boy if you just send me a bike for my birthday and if it's a red one. Thank you, please, Johnny. Now, he knew that wasn't true, and he was getting frustrated with this process that his mom was putting him through. He got upset, he went downstairs, and he said to his mom, you know what, mom, I need to go to church. And his mom, with a smile on his, her face, said, you know what, that'd be a good idea. Not really knowing what he was up to, not knowing what he was thinking, but thinking that somehow through this process, God was softening his heart and breaking his strong will of his. So he left, he ran out the door, went down to the end of the street, and the first church he came across was a Catholic church. He walked into the Catholic church, went up to the front, looked around, no one was looking, grabbed the statue of the Virgin Mary, stuffed it under his coat. He went running down the sidewalk, went running past his mom and said, I'll be right upstairs, I'm writing, a, I'm writing a letter to God. Letter number five, God, I've got your mother. If you want to see her again, send me a bike. Signed, you know who. I thought, man, you know what? If that doesn't summarize the essence of the message of what we've learned to date, I don't know what does. You know, you think about it. You know, the the reality of the seriousness, and and I, I like it because in a humorous way, it helps us to see us exactly as God sees us. We all start out thinking so highly of ourselves. We all start out thinking, you know what, I'm okay and you're okay. And we buy books that say that and we believe that and we promote that and we encourage that. And you're not as bad as you think you are. And God comes along and says, that's right, you're not as bad as you think you are. You're worse. You are worse than you could ever imagine and so am I. And we realize as we look through it and God begins to clearly show us how really rotten and putrid we are in the sight of a holy God. There's nothing good in any of us. It's a harsh message, but it's true. It's like going to a doctor and you say, I feel okay, and he says, but it doesn't matter, you're sick. And here, let me show you the results on the CAT scan or the MRI or the X-ray. You've got a serious problem. And it doesn't matter what you think of your problem. It doesn't matter how bad you think it is or how quickly you think you'll get over it. You have got a serious problem. And the Bible says that problem for mankind is sin. That all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, in the book of Romans is divided up for a better understanding into three sections. And the reason I want to bring it up at this point is because we're kind of going to a new section, a new area. But section one, number one, has to do with doctrinal or, the, or basically what God has done through the first eight chapters is lay out clearly for us what our problem is, we're sinners... There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that through Adam, sin came into the world. And as descendants of Adam, whether we like it or not, whether we we want to believe it or not, 
We are all born with a congenital birth defect called sin nature, and it's stamped upon us. Psalm 139, David says, Even in my mother's womb I was conceived in sin. And not that the act of conception was sinful in and of itself. What he was saying is, is that as a human being, we come into the world branded guilty before God. And he has outlined that for us very clearly so that none of us can walk away with anything other than the understanding that on our best of best days, we still fall way short of the glory of God. And why is that? Because God is perfect. And in him there is no darkness at all. And sin cannot penetrate or enter into the very presence of God. And if we're to spend an eternity with God, if we're to be forgiven by God, if we're to be found justified before God, the Bible says we must recognize that we have a serious problem. When we recognize that problem is what has separated us from God, the Bible says that the recourse for the problem is very simple. And that is that we have to not only believe what God says about our condition, that we're sinful, but we must also believe what God says as far as the only provision that's made to, 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 uh, to heal us from that infirmity that we have. There's only one prescription that's written by the great physician for all of mankind. And that prescription is simply this that you recognize that you're a sinner and that you respond with faith to the finished work of Christ upon the cross. His death and His resurrection, the Bible says, are for all who would believe. That's an exciting message. And we cannot, we, we cannot minimize the message because it is the heart and the essence of everything that God wants humanity to know. I am, not, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said, from the very beginning of our study because it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. So we look at that and begin to understand he's outlined what it is that's wrong with us, what it is we need to do to be right before God. And the Bible says that for those who call upon the name of Christ, they shall be saved. For there's no other name under heaven given by which man can be saved. For all who believe in him. The question as we've got to this point is a very simple one and a poignant one, and that is this. God will judge each of us on an individual basis. We will not be judged collectively. We will not be judged as a group. We will not be judged as a family unit. We will be judged as individuals on what we did with what God has shared with us as far as do you recognize you individually that you are a sinner before God? Have you cried out to God, God, forgive me for your right. I'm guilty as charged. What do I need to do to be right with you? And he says, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, that he died in your place, that he rose again to demonstrate he is who he claims to be. You know, people can say they died for our sins. People can say that they forgive us. But as Jesus often said, he says, what's the easier thing to say, you're forgiven, or to tell a man to take up his pallet and walk who had never walked? What's the easiest thing to do? Say the world is forgiven if they believe in me. But to demonstrate he has the power to forgive sin, guess what? He was raised from the dead. And he is alive today. And we need to recognize and understand that is what differentiates Jesus Christ from any other religion or religious person ever walked the face of the earth. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ rose. And Jesus Christ is alive today. And he indwells the heart of believers who trust in him. And he sits at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for us. And the Spirit of God doing the same thing. And God has chosen us who have trusted in Christ. And that's the exciting message that we're at as we go through here. Now the turning point, as we'll see, is that there's a dispensational or what we call a segregational point, And that has to do with God's working as far as the nation of Israel is concerned. And we're going to see that in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And you're going to wonder why in the midst of everything that God's doing do we now, are we now introduced to how God has dealt with the nation of Israel. And it's important that we see that because he's going to end our study in what's called duty or service, which has to do with we who have come to faith in Christ, how are we now to live our lives today as we await the coming of Jesus Christ or until he calls us home to be with himself? What is it, God, that you want me to do? What's my purpose in being here? Remember, we were dead to God. We were alive to sin. Now we're dead to sin. We're alive to Christ. Why? For the purpose of bringing glory to God. We have a purpose, and it's to reflect the glory and the image of God to a lost and fallen world, a world that is condemned and doesn't even know it. So as we turn to Romans chapter 9, we're going to be dealing specifically with this whole idea of how God deals with the nation of Israel. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at that, and it, and it has to do with this, this section has to do with God's dealing or working with the nation of Israel. And it's really important, as we'll see it, because you wonder, say, well, why, why is this here at this particular moment in our study? And as we look at it, we're going to find that it's a necessary and important argument of Paul's that has to do with that our justification before God is by faith and faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. 
the way that God deals with the nation of Israel is the same way that God deals with you and I. So if you recall, if you've got your Bibles open, look at chapter 8 for a second. And we were introduced to a thought that could be very confusing to some of us, and it has to do with the idea of, the, of God's choosing or election. In Romans 8, we see in verse 28, it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love the Lord and are called according to His purposes, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined, these He called. And whom He called, these He justified. And whom He justified, these He glorified. We're going to look at something that can be very confusing, but it doesn't have to be as we look at the explanation that's given, and it has to do with the calling or choosing of God. In the Bible, it says that God foreknew, that He predestined for the purpose of conforming us into the image of His Son. It says that He called, He called, He justified those He called, He justified those He justified, He has glorified. It's a done deal. It's a complete package. And we talked about that in Romans 8, where if we've been called or chosen by God, we have been justified by God by faith in Christ, if we've been justified, we're being sanctified, which has to do with being conformed into Christ's image. And we've also been glorified, past tense. It's already taken place. It's as good as done. We're just waiting for the fruition of it. It would be almost as if someone said, look, you are sentenced to life imprisonment and you haven't reported yet for your sentencing, but it's a done deal the moment the judge issues that edict. You are going to prison for life. Most of the time when somebody gets that kind of sentence, they're not allowed to go home and get their, their act or their belongings together because they become a major flight risk. You know what I mean? And so that's why they're immediately taken out and the sentence then begins and it will continue throughout a person's life. What God says is this. When you and I trust in Jesus Christ, we are justified in a moment of time, declared just before God. We are sanctified, which that process we see over our lifetime, but we're also glorified, meaning that we will share in all of the promises of God that we've already talked about in Romans 8. It's a done deal. So it's an exciting point. But as we look at this idea of God's choosing, it can get very confusing. Because uh, we also have learned that unfortunately, as believers, not often do we always live like those who have been justified. Not always do we live like those who are being sanctified. Not always do we live like those who are being conformed into the image of Christ. And so as we look at that and begin to ask some questions, it's very important. And that's why the context as we study is so important. The doctrine of eternal security of the believer becomes only confusing when we take it out of context. Because if you remember throughout the book of Romans so far... We have already been warned that, you know what, just because you've come to faith in Christ is not a license to live any way you want to live. That's Romans chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. Yes, we are forgiven, we're justified, sanctified, glorified in a moment of time, but it doesn't give us license to just go out and live like hell. And so what God is saying is it, it does matter how we live. It doesn't matter as far as our relationship to God is concerned, but it does matter as far as whether we reflect His glory in our life or not. It does matter whether we reflect the purposes by which He has saved us, which is to bring glory to Christ. It does matter that we're being conformed into the image of God, but as far as our relationship with God, it doesn't change a thing. So as we learn in context, now when it says, what will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ, can anything, the Bible says absolutely not. Why? Because it's not based on how we live our life. It's not based on anything in and of ourself. It's based entirely on what? Faith in Christ and Him alone and His death on our behalf. So it shouldn't be that difficult to understand I can't do anything to lose my salvation because I didn't do anything to gain my salvation. It's based on God. Wow, what a wonderful promise that is. Because it takes a lot of pressure off of all of us, doesn't it? It is based on God. Does it mean we have a carefree or casual attitude toward what God's done for us? Absolutely not. The Bible clearly teaches in 1 Corinthians 6, we've been bought with the very precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now live like we understand that. So we don't take that lightly at all. But we don't sh shrink from what God says about His promise. So the point is this. If God chooses, can God make a mistake? And that's really the essence of what we're talking about here. If God chooses, does God make mistakes? 
Because it would have to be God who has made a mistake. After all, if he's chosen those who have come to faith in Christ, and he has, and as we've already seen in some way, we fail oftentimes, and we do, uh, did God make a mistake when he chose you or chose me? And so what he's going to do is illustrate this important question by using the nation of Israel to reveal God's character. It's almost as if somehow at this point God is on trial. And really when you think about it, I had several people come up to me after Romans 8 and they gave me all the what-if scenarios. Well, what if? What if a person comes to faith in Christ and later they say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with you, God. Something happens to them. Maybe somebody dies that's close to them. Maybe they go through a tragic illness. Maybe they lose their business. Maybe they lose a child to illness. Maybe something happens that's so devastating in their life that they get so upset with God, they say, you know what, I don't care. I don't want, I don't want to be your child anymore. I don't want to be forgiven by you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And they say, oh, they walk away from God. You know what? The Bible says while we're faithless, he's still faithful. And what a beautiful illustration of it in the prodigal son whom the father waited and longed for the day that the son would repent and wake up one day and smell the coffee, as we say in our culture, and say, man, what am I doing? I'm eating with pigs. I'm slopping with pigs. Even my father's servants are living better than I am. I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say, I am sorry. Please forgive me. Train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. Does it mean he won't make mistakes or she along the way? Absolutely not. Does it mean that you and I won't mistake, make mistakes along the way? Absolutely not. What we're doing here is we are, we are looking at the character of God. This is all about God. This isn't about you and me. You mean if we reject God at some point in our life that somehow God made a mistake if he chose us? So God's the one who made the mistake? We look at this and we begin to realize and understand that the very character of God is on trial before the people that Paul has has written to and now is speaking to. And the same is true in our culture today. All the what-if questions about whether or not God is faithful or He isn't faithful, whether or not we can walk from God's promises, whether or not we can do something that would separate us from the love of God that's in Christ, will now be answered for us by using the nation of Israel as the example that will highlight the character of God. How he dealt with them in the past, chapter 9. How he deals with them in the, in the present, chapter 10. How he'll deal with them in the future, chapter 11. And you know what? And it's all relevant to you and I. And we need to recognize it and understand it. Romans chapter 9, starting with verse 1. Paul says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ and I'm not lying. My conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descendants from Israel. Neither are they all children, because um, they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and hadn't done had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand. Not because of his works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. In Romans 8, Paul had argued that the believer is secure in Christ and that God's election or his choice would stand. Those whom God calls, he will never lose. But uh, when we look at this, someone might ask, well, what about the Jews? I mean, if you stop and think about it, they were chosen by God, and yet now you tell us that they're set aside and that somehow or another God is building his church, that he's turned his attention to non-Jews, all, all the rest who aren't Jews, to Gentiles, and, and he's turned his attention to them, and that now he's offered salvation to them and he's building his church through them. And, and it's like, well, wait a minute, we don't understand 
and rightfully so, if God chose them, what's He doing with them now? See, did God make a mistake when He chose Israel? And if God made a mistake, and I want you to follow this through very carefully, because see, if God made a mistake when He chose the nation of Israel, what prevents Him from making another mistake when He chooses you or me? See, if God made a mistake choosing Israel, maybe He's made a mistake choosing Gentiles and building His church. I don't know about you, but I'll tell you what, that, that's a question that we need to have answered. Because I'd sure like to know. If God can make mistakes, then we're all in big trouble. If God can change his mind, we're all in big trouble. If God's word's not trustworthy, we're all in big trouble. See, what he's trying to help us to understand is, how can we trust God to be faithful to us if he hasn't been or isn't being or won't be faithful to the nation of Israel? It's a great question. It's an exciting question. And it's a question that once we get answered will be one that also answers what we would struggle with, and that is, let's face it, you know what? As concerned as we may or may not be with the nation of Israel, one thing that I do know about me, I am very concerned about myself. You know, when you break it all down to it, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned about my relationship with God. Uh, you know, and, and I may be concerned about you, and you may be concerned about me, but in the final analysis, the only thing that's really going to matter is, what is my relationship with God? What are the promises that God made to me? And will he be faithful to, to, uh, to accomplish his purposes? But he uses this so that we understand in chapter 9, you know, Paul's defending the very character of God. And what we're going to see as we go through this, there are four attributes in this passage that he's going to look at. The first one has to do, as we'll see in chapter um, uh, 9, verses 1 through 13, has to do with the faithfulness of God. See, God can't make mistakes, but I can. And that's why I wrote that second S in there. Um, so just point it out right away. Just get it out of, out of your system, because some of you be like, hey, you notice that? It looks like he hand wrote that one in there. So I don't want you to get sidetracked. I'm just going to confess right now. That's what I did, okay? So there we go. And it'll be an illustration somewhere along the line. But the faithfulness of God is in verses 1 through 13, the righteousness of God in 14 through 18, which we're going to look at today, the justice and grace of God we'll look at the next time we get together. So as we look at this, let's look at the attributes of God. We'll start with the very first one, which has to do with God's faithfulness in verses 1 through 13. The question is, can God or does God make mistakes? And in verses 1 through 13, which we've already read, in these verses, Paul moves from the joy of the believer's security in Christ to the sorrow and burden that comes with knowing folks who are still lost and condemned, those who are still guilty before God, those who are still sinners or dead in their sin, the Bible says. It's important as we look at this is that there's only two types of people on the face of the earth, those who are alive to God and those who are dead to God. Those who are, the Bible says, alive in Adam, but dead to Christ, versus those alive in Christ and, and, and dead to God. And the bottom line is the only way you and I can go from one place to the next, the only way you can go from death to God to life to God, is by trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The Bible says that that person at that moment in time is born again, becomes spiritually alive to God as indwelled with the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit, and now we see things differently than we ever saw them before. It's like living, I was sharing with a couple of the other night, it's like living in a black and white world, and when Christ comes into your life, everything is now in color. It's a wonderful truth about the way that we see things before versus how we see things now. Man, there's nothing more exciting than that. And the Bible says as Paul looks around him, Notice what he says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit, it literally it means by the means of the Holy Spirit, he is grieving in verse 2. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Now you've got to ask the question, what in the world could he be, sorrow, be sorrowful about or grieving or have grief in his heart about because he just shared with us that those of us who are in Christ Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. He just shared with us that those who have faith and trust in Christ, we look for that great moment when Jesus will come again to, to establish his kingdom upon this earth. We look for that day where Jesus, who goes to prepare a place for us, will come to be, we with him and he with us, for all of eternity, that that where I be, you shall be also. And if I wasn't telling you the truth, I wouldn't have told you that. But it's true, John chapter 14. He just told us about, we can look for the promises of God, that those who are absent from the body will be present with 
with the Lord if we die today before Christ returns. And that we who are alive, those who are alive when he comes, with those who have died or preceded us, will come with this great army of God and will be caught up together with him in the heavens and that we will be with him for all of eternity. The Bible says he's going to come and establish his kingdom here on earth where God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a wonderful, exciting thing to look forward to all the promises of God. But now all of a sudden he's saying, and, and on top of that, there's nothing you and I can do to ever to, to blow that relationship with God. What can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ? Nothing. We need to get that resolved in our hearts. Nothing. Because it's all God and not us. Now all of a sudden he switches gears. He says, you know what? But I want to tell you something. As exciting as all that is, man, I'm just bummed out about something. My heart is breaking. There's sadness in my heart. I'm grieving in my heart. And I've got to ask the question, what could you be grieving about at this point? You know what he's grieving about? Because he's not as selfish as I am sometimes. He's not as selfish about as, as maybe you are sometimes. We can get so caught up in the truth of God's promises to us. I am excited about my relationship with Christ. My life has never been the same since February 16, 1978. There isn't a day that I wake up that I don't thank God for what he's done in my life through Christ. And I, I'm excited about that. And the promises of God, they get me over the discouragement of the moment. How can we even compare? Remember, the sufferings of this present age, compared, it's not even worthy to that which God has promised and will, will bring to fruition. You say, well, then why would we just be discouraged or why would we be grieving or weeping about anything? And he says, I'll tell you why. For I wish that I myself, in verse 3, were accursed, even separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Notice what he says. He says, you know, as exciting as all the promises of God are, when I look around me and I see those who are related to me and I realize the word of God is true, that they are lost, that they are condemned, that they are guilty, that outside of Christ there is no hope for them, it breaks my heart and I grieve. You know, I thought about that and I thought, wow, you know what? When, when was the last time that you saw people around you who are lost, who are condemned, who are guilty before God. They don't even know it. I think about the doctor, as the illustration I used, who, who sees that x-ray or sees that CAT scan or sees that MRI before he goes in to talk to his patient. And what he must go through at that moment in time when he realizes that, you know what? i got some bad news to bring to these people. I wish it weren't so, but it's truth. And i got to walk into that room, and I'm going to have to share with them the reality of their condition. They don't even know as they sit there how bad it really is. God made that very real to me on our trip back east when we were back in Pennsylvania. To see people that I hadn't seen for 25 years, people that I hadn't seen since I've come to know Christ, and I prayed on the way back, and many of you did too, that somehow God would soften the hearts of those who were there to receive the truth of His Word. We must always precede those conversations with, with intense prayer. The effective and fervent prayers of a righteous man will accomplish much. But a hardened soil that's not prepared to receive that news will defend themselves, will justify themselves, or worse, will just close the door where they don't even want to hear it. And just to pray, God, just give me an opportunity. And just to see one potential conversation after another, just the door just slammed shut. Just no interest. Good for you, but how's California? How's the weather out there? How are jobs out there? Whatever. And it just broke my heart. And then I began to realize that, you know, and we're going to talk in a second about this, but the Bible is very clear that today is the day of the Holy Spirit. Today is the day of the Lord. In Revelation 3.20, you know what Jesus says? I stand at the door and I knock. And what happens is He knocks. You're guilty. You're a sinner. You need to know Christ. He died for your sins. He's knocking at the door. You say, you know what? Can somebody get it? It's like me at home. Uh, someone's at the door. Can somebody get it? And it's always embarrassing when you're in the house. But, you know, I'm still hoping. You know, hey, get the door. Or, you know, answer the phone. Can somebody get it? Oh, you're here alone. Oh, man. And, and you can't hear it anymore. 
and you can't hear the knock anymore. Why can't you hear the knock anymore? Not because the knock's not there, but because you have become so hardened in your heart that you just kind of blank it out. See, that's a sad reality. But as I was reading through this, I began to think, you know, is that God's fault? Who's responsible for that decision? Does God make mistakes? Is that somehow God's fault? And so what Paul has done is he said, you know, I want you to see all the blessings. Eight things that identify an Israelite, but more importantly, all the blessings of God that were given to these people. They were adopted as sons. You know, the adoption that was pertained to a national entity, they were adopted. The Bible says that God adopted Israel. The only nation ever in the history of the world that God called His Son was the nation of Israel. In fact, the Lord speaking to Moses said, Go and tell Pharaoh. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, He says, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy, thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people to Himself above all the people that are on the face of the earth. God chose them, adopted them as His Son. The only nation He ever said that to. The only nation in the history of the world that has a complete history, past, present, and future. We know it all right here. He adopted them as His Son. And I believe that. And I'll tell you why I believe that. Because I believe the Word of God. If I can't believe that God chose them as His Son, then I can't believe that God says, whosoever will believe in Jesus Christ will not perish, but have everlasting life. So we look at this, the adoption as a son. Why did God choose Israel? Because He wanted to. How about that for some deep theological discussion? Because He chose to. That's why. He says, I've chosen you. He chose to reveal to them the glory of God. Do you realize the very presence and glory of God was revealed to the nation of Israel? When Moses went up on Mount Sinai, God revealed to himself the Shekinah glory of God. The glory of God dwelt in the tabernacle. The glory of God dwelt with the nation of Israel. They were given a tremendous blessing. Why did God choose Israel to reveal his glory? Because he wanted to. That's why. The covenants that he made. Certain covenants with the nation of Israel that he plans and intends on carrying out. He made promises to them. The covenants that he made. He said to David that one would come through his lineage that would be the Savior and a blessing to the world. He made that promise. And he fulfilled it. He gave them the law. He called Moses to Mount Sinai and he, and he revealed God's law to them. He entrusted the laws of God to the nation of Israel so that all the peoples of the world will look at the nation of Israel to discover what it is that God wants man to be and what it is that God, who it is that God is in the character. And if you want to stop and think about something for a second, and as a criminal, former criminal justice major that, that studied law, one of the things that always fascinated me was that God had given to the nation of Israel the Ten Commandments and the Code of Hammurabi, which is used throughout the world for civilizations to determine what is right and what is wrong, is all based upon Scripture. And the irony of living in a country where we say, in God we trust, but we can't have the Ten Commandments in a judicial justice department or can't hang them in a courthouse is not lost to God. The laws of civilization were handed to the nation of Israel and entrusted to them so that we as people, humanity, can see who the character of God, who He really is. The perfection and holiness of God. And through the law, what we determined and what we found out is we can't keep the law, we fall short of the law, and the purpose of the law was to do what? To lead man to Jesus Christ. Because we go, hey, there's no way I can keep the law. We all fall short of the law. We're in big trouble. That's exactly right. Well, what am I going to do about it? Well, you know what? You're going to trust in Jesus Christ. He's His only, only prescription for your ailment. Period. The law was given to the nation of Israel. The service of God was given to the nation of Israel. If you look at this, he goes on and says, Who are the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption? 
the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, they served, they served the Lord. The, the, the tribe of Levite were, were, were a tribe that was dedicated and set aside to just service, serve God in the temple. And you know what? One day when Christ comes and restores the millennial kingdom, that same thing will take place once again. The serving of Jesus Christ. Serving of God. What a wonderful truth that is. The promises of God, which we've already talked about. God made a ton of promises to the nation of Israel. And He fulfilled them or is continuing to fulfill them and will fulfill them. He told Joshua, go into the land that I've given you and possess it. And I will make you a great nation. He made them a promise. The land that he promised is their land. And there's a whole bunch of people in the world that are upset about that. But the reality of it is, why did God choose to do what he did? Because he wanted to. Because he chose to. It was his decision. It was his choice. The fathers, we know, talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the Messiah. Through the nation of Israel came Jesus Christ. Now the question as we look at all this is, all of these blessings were given freely to the nation of Israel, to no other nation, but in spite of the blessings, guess what? They failed. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Notice what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came for a witness, that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. Speaking of the nation of Israel, speaking of the Jews, Jesus Christ came through the lineage of David. He was born into the world a Jew. He came to his own. But look what the Bible says. <clears throat> but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. They crucified him. The Jews put him on the cross, and they crucified him. That's why when Peter was preaching at, at Pentecost, at that great sermon of his in Acts chapter 5, when he was preaching Acts chapter 3, through that, through that chapter, when he was preaching, he said, this Jesus whom you have crucified, you stuck him on the tree, you tortured him, you killed him, you executed him. And you know what the people said? What must we do to be saved? From what? From the wrath of God from the condemnation of God, from the judgment of God. Our sins put Christ on the cross. And the response is, oh, I'm guilty. What do I got to do to be saved from the wrath of God, the condemnation, the judgment, the guilt that comes with being guilty before God? He says, well, what you need to do is you need to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What must we do to be saved? Believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He came unto His own and His own received Him not. But, huge but, awesome, but for many as have received Him, to them He's given the privilege to be called the Son of God, a child of God, to those who believe in His name. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. You notice what He's saying is, and so here's the struggle, think about this, but God, you gave the nation of Israel all of these blessings. Right? And yet they did not receive Christ. They rejected Him. What's the natural question? God, did you make a mistake when you chose Israel? Now there are a lot of people that hate the nation of Israel and would like that answer to be yes. But the problem is this how they responded to the blessings of God have nothing to do with the promises of God. Has nothing to do with the faithfulness of God. See, while we are faithless, He is faithful. One of the hardest things to understand for me about God is God and His unconditional love. How can God love people who don't love Him in response? How can God love people who continually fail Him and treat casually the very blood, precious blood of Christ shed for them? 
how can God love me when I fail God? That question really comes out of how can God love Israel when Israel was given all these blessings and Israel failed God? I mean, it was God saying, oh, my bad, wrong choice. No. Why? Because he chose them from the beginning. Why did God choose them? He answered it very simply. He says, I never chose Israel because they were great in numbers, because they were the mightiest nation on the face of the earth, because of any other reason than the fact that I looked out at my creation and I chose them. It would be no different in a very simple and maybe foolish illustration to look out over a group of people and say, you know what, you, come here a second, I chose you and I'm going to give you, here's $1,000. Now you sit there and go, well, that's not fair. Well, why is it not fair? Because you didn't get chosen, right? Isn't that the way we work? I see that all the time. You know, being involved in sports, people get cut all the time. The person that gets cut, the first thing they say is, that's not fair. Why isn't it fair? Well, because I didn't get chosen. Then the people that do get chosen, they do get picked, and they're sitting on the bench, and they watch the rest of the people who get cut, and they see them walk away. They're not overly concerned about whether it was fair that they're not on the team. Their concern is, hey, you know what? I got chosen. Oh, gee, they didn't. Ah, too bad. It's kind of the way it works, right? It's very simple. So you look at that and go, well, that's not fair. What's not fair? See, and, and, and what he does is he lays out an argument back to Romans chapter 9. Let's look at this. I want to give you a couple of things to think about. He lays out an argument. It's a very clear argument. Romans chapter 9, look at verse 6. See, it says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. Notice the first thing is that God must have made a mistake. And the answer is, no, God didn't make a mistake. Rest assured, God didn't make a mistake. Just because Israel failed doesn't mean God failed. Okay? It says, for they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. It says, neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. There was a common misunderstanding that God chose the nation of Israel, and because God chose the nation of Israel, that everyone who was a Jew automatically was chosen by God to be forgiven by God. And what Jesus did very clearly was explain, it's like, look, this isn't based on natural descent. This isn't based on your genealogy. You're not chosen by God because of genealogy, because there is a, a nation of Israel that's of the flesh, and there's a nation of Israel that's of the spirit. There are Jews who are saved, there are Jews who are lost. Even though he chose the nation collectively, within the nation, individuals can be saved or can be lost. And the illustration was very simple. There was a, there was a group of people that came to Jesus one day and said, hey, we're of, our, we're of our father Abraham. And it was like an arrogant way of saying, hey, we're of our father Abraham, so God has to love us because we're of his descendants. And Jesus said, you know what? Well, if you're of your father Abraham, you would do the things your father Abraham did. Now, what did Abraham do? Hebrews 11 says that Abraham, what? Believed God. Remember in our study so far, as Abraham was justified before God because what? Abraham believed the promise of God. When he believed God and the promises of God, that moment in time he was justified, sanctified, glorified. So what he was saying is this, if you're really of your father Abraham, you would do what Abraham did, which was believe the word of God. But you're not of your father Abraham, even though you're a Jew, you're of your father the devil. And he's a liar and he's a murderer from the very beginning, and you're just like him, and you're of your father the devil. Now, you talk about somebody that would be offended as a Jew saying, Who, wait a minute now. And so what he did very clearly was he helped them to understand, and Paul's doing the same thing here, saying that, wait a minute, if, you were of, you know, if this was just about natural descendants, then the Ishmaelites would be saved, the Midianites would be saved, as you go through it, the Edomites would be saved, because they were all of their father Abraham. They were all from Abraham's seed. But any Jew would know that those countries were godless countries that turned their back on God and hated God and walked away from God. And so what he was arguing very clearly was saying, look, you know what, you're not chosen because of natural descent. Now, very easy for us at this point to say this, and that is this. You and I aren't chosen by God because we come from a Christian family. You and I aren't chosen by God because your mother's a Christian or your father's a Christian or your grandparents are Christians. You're not chosen by God because of anything of a natural descent that you may rest your hat upon. You're not chosen or elect by God because of anything in and of yourself. And that's exactly what God was trying to point out to the nation of Israel. You are not automatically forgiven by God because you're of the nation of Israel. Because there are those who are saved and there are those who are lost. 
In fact, in Acts 21.20, Dr. Luke tells us, when they heard it, speaking to the Jews, they glorified God and they said to him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews uh, there are which believe, and they're zealous of the law. Literally, in Israel, there were thousands of Jews who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That group that said, what must we do to be saved? We put Christ on the cross. We put him to death. And, and Peter said, thou must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Thousands of people responded to that invitation and they were saved by God. Question for you is this. We'll kind of run out of time. But the question is this. How do I know if I am chosen by God? This is huge. Because the question is, how do I know if I've been chosen by God? And the reason this is so important is because we've already learned this. Whom God chooses, he what? He justifies. Whom God has justified, he sanctifies. Whom God has chosen, justified, sanctified, he glorified. The complete package is done. The question is this. How do I know, how do you know if you've been chosen or one of the elect of God? That God has chosen you. Very simple. How you respond to the following questions will determine if you are chosen by God. Have you believed what God has said, that you are a sinner, that you fall short of the glory of God? Have you acknowledged that before God? Lord, I'm a sinner. What you say about me is true. Number two, I come to you and I ask you for forgiveness. And I believe what you say. I take you at your word. I believe your word that Jesus Christ died for those sins. And to the best of my ability, to the best of my understanding, I receive him as my Lord and as my Savior. If you have responded affirmatively to those two questions, the Bible says there's no doubt that you've been chosen by God. Because whom God has chosen as we respond to the gospel message, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. If you believe what God says, then you are justified at that moment in time. You're sanctified, you're glorified. And it has nothing to do with anything that you've done, what you haven't done. By faith we've been saved, by, by grace we've been saved through faith. And not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. That was the message that he's trying to get across. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Do you remember what we said in John chapter 1? Go back to that and we'll close. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many, in verse 12, as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Notice, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, but of the will of God. You and I, if we are indeed born again, are born again by the power of God, by the very word of God. We have nothing to offer. We can't negotiate with God. We come to him on his terms. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I trust Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. There's nowhere else to turn. There's nowhere else to go. There's nothing else I can do. I come with my hands bare and empty and I fall down on my knees. And I realize something about God and that's this. God does what he does because he's God. God chooses whom he chooses because he has the right to do so. And it is about time that you and I bow down before the judgment of God I am amazed, and at times I'm just appalled by people who would, without any question or reservation, follow some of the political leaders of our country, for example, who have demonstrated time and time again reprehensible and immoral and irresponsible conduct before our country. They have shown poor judgment in what they have done. And yet we see polls that say that popularity is at an all-time high and everything is wonderful and they never question the judgment of men. But when God chooses to do something, that's not fair. Who are you to do what you're doing? I'm God. 
You don't question the judgment of men. But when it comes to the judgment of God, you question me on everything that I do as if somehow my character is on trial. Who do you people think you are? We question the judgment of God. All I know is this. I fall down on my knees every day and I thank God that He chose me, that He called me, that He foreknew me, that He predestined me, that I would respond to the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ. And it has nothing to do with anything of who I am or what I was or what I was doing or what I wasn't doing or what family I came from or what family I didn't come from because the invitation is open to everybody. Whosoever will may come. Now you may be here today and you may have not responded to that invitation. And I would just beg you. I would encourage you. I would implore you. And like Paul, there's grief in the hearts of those who love you that maybe have invited you or given you a tape or whatever it is to try to help you understand what God is saying that you're hopelessly lost outside of Christ. And Jesus says, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. And the knocking is evident because today is the day of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit of God makes Himself aware, makes you aware of the truth. And you have an opportunity to respond to that. And you can either say, Lord, come into my life and forgive me of my sin or somebody else get the door and I'm not getting up. And that's the two choices that we have. And the bottom line is, can we ever say that God is unfair? There'll not be a person in hell who hasn't chosen to be there by rejecting the grace of God. And we need to recognize that. And we need to understand that. Because if you choose to, to, to reject Him, you can't stand before Him and say, that's not fair. When you stand before the holy and righteous God, you will realize at that time that He has the privilege and the right to do whatever it is that He chooses to do. And He has chosen to send Christ for God so loved the world that He gave us His only begotten Son. He chose to do that, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Did God make a mistake when he chose the nation of Israel? Absolutely not, because it's not based on their response to his blessings, but it's based on the faithfulness of the word of God. Has God made a mistake when he has chosen you or I if we've responded in faith to the finished work of Christ? Absolutely not, God forbid, because it's based on the faithfulness of God and not based on our performance or lack of it. That's why the Bible says, what can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Absolutely nothing. Father, we just love you. We thank you. We praise you that you're a God who can't make any mistakes, that we can fully trust in you and rest in you and trust your judgment. God, help us to lean upon you. The Bible says that we're to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and to not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you and that you'll set our path straight. God, we love you, we praise you, we just thank you. We thank you that whom you have called, you have chosen, whom you've chosen, you've justified, you've sanctified, and you've glorified. That our salvation is all based upon you. Even Paul would go on to say that, that, that the very thing that I've trusted in you, my eternity, that I know that I can trust you because he who began a good work in me will per perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, that I can trust you with my very soul. Lord, I just thank you and I praise you for this wonderful gift of grace. May we never take it for granted. In Christ's name, amen.